Welcome to the California Slap Law Podcast. California's slap law was a great idea, but it can be a minefield for the uninformed. To guide you through that minefield, here's your host, One of kind. from the law firm of Morris & Stone, Aaron Morris. Welcome to the 29th episode of the California Slap Law Podcast, a top 10 legal podcast, or so I'm told. My name is Aaron Morris. I'm a partner with the Southern California boutique law firm of Morris & Stone. If we can be of assistance with anything having to do with free speech, defamation, or anti-slap motions, or if you need to fight an attorney fee application following an anti-slap motion, please feel free to call at 714-954-0700 or email me at morris at toplawfirm.com. Dot com. Also, be sure to follow me on Twitter at Aaron Morris ESQ, Aaron Morris Esque. I have to set the scene for today's discussion with a personal anecdote. About four years ago, I came up with a brilliant idea to sell our house, sock away the money, and wait for the housing market to crash. Then we would buy back at a tremendous savings. Well, as you know, even the pandemic hasn't managed to pop the housing bubble, so we decided to get back into the housing market and we just bought a new home. Like the guy who makes it rain by getting his car washed, you can anticipate that the housing market will crash now that I bought a home. I want to apologize for that in advance. Anyway, while we were renting, I just didn't have a good place to set up my podcasting studio. That's why the California Slap Law podcast took a short break, and that's why last week's episode was actually a couple of years old. I recorded it back in 2019, but just last week got around to editing and publishing it. But the timing worked out very well because I can immediately report the results of the appeal that followed the case we discussed last week. In case you're not up to speed, this was the case between a guy I called George and his attorney Esquire. George hired Esquire for a case review and paid him a healthy $10,000 just for the review. George wasn't happy with the review provided by Esquire, so he took him to fee arbitration through the San Francisco Bar Association. The fee arbitration process is very informal, specifically because it is designed to allow clients to challenge the fees charged by their attorneys without the need to hire yet another attorney. Often, as was the case here, the fees are fairly nominal and it would not make sense to pay yet another attorney to argue about the fees paid to the first attorney. It would just end up being a wash. So the process is very informal and the arbitrators are not even required to follow the rules of evidence. The parties can introduce hearsay testimony, provide unauthenticated documents. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. So George goes through this informal process and loses. The arbitrator concludes that Esquire can keep the entire $10,000. But then Esquire can't leave it alone. He turns around and sues his client George for malicious prosecution. George hired me to fight the malicious prosecution claim, and I responded with an anti-slap motion. And... I lost. What I didn't tell you last time is that the loss was doubly frustrating because the tentative ruling was in my favor. The way motions sometimes work is that the motion is decided by a research attorney at the court who then provides their conclusion to the judge. If the busy judge has faith in the research attorney, they will often just go on what the attorney concluded. But as they are reading the ruling by the research attorney, the judge does not have the benefit of all the arguments that led to that determination. So sometimes the tentative ruling can be reversed at oral argument. I felt like I'd snatched defeat from the jaws of victory 
history. So in episode 28, I told you about my argument to the Court of Appeal in San Francisco and said we would have to wait for the opinion. Well, due to the delay in publishing that episode, it's now a week later and we already have the opinion from the Court of Appeal as well as the ruling on my motion for attorney fees. Stick around after the show and I'll tell you about the very entertaining opposition to my motion for attorney fees. So my client was sued for malicious prosecution. I brought an anti-slap motion that was denied, and I took it up on appeal. Did I win the appeal? Of course I won. Naturellement. Naturellement. But here's the really interesting analysis that came out of the decision. Opposing counsel and I spent 95% of our arguments on appeal arguing the distinction between contractual arbitration and judicial arbitration. As you may recall, I needed the court to conclude that this was a contractual arbitration. The nature of the arbitration brought it under the anti-slap statute for purposes of the first prong of the anti-slap analysis, and if I could persuade the court that it was a contractual arbitration, we would win on the second prong because case law is clear that a contractual arbitration cannot be the basis for a malicious prosecution claim. Here is what the Court of Appeal had to say about this contractual versus judicial arbitration conundrum. The court refers to the MFAA arbitration. MFAA refers to the Mandatory Fee Arbitration Act, which is the California statute that sets forth the process for fee arbitrations between attorneys and their clients. Reading from the opinion, quote, Courts have held that a malicious prosecution claim cannot be based on private contractual arbitration, but can be based on judicial arbitration. As a result, the parties here have vigorously disputed whether MFAA arbitration is closer to judicial arbitration or private contractual arbitration. MFAA proceedings do not fit cleanly into either category. For example, Brennan that's the case the court is citing. Brennan's conclusion that malicious prosecution cannot follow a private arbitration rested in part on the voluntary nature of private arbitration and the finality of private arbitration awards. Considerations such as voluntariness and finality do not easily apply to MFAA arbitration. By default, MFAA arbitration is voluntary for clients but mandatory for attorneys, while attorneys and clients may voluntarily agree in their fee agreements to require MFAA arbitration. Likewise, MFAA arbitration awards by default are not final in that either party can request a trial de novo, but parties can agree to make the award binding after a dispute arises, and an award can become binding if no party requests a trial de novo within the statutory time period, as happened here. MFAA arbitration also does not squarely fit the mold of judicial arbitration. In judicial arbitration, relatively small cases filed in court are subject to mandatory diversion for non-binding arbitration before being allowed to proceed to trial. This serves as an aid to settlement of litigation by giving the parties an arbitrator's neutral view of all the issues in the case, including damages and costs. If no party requests a trial de novo after arbitration, the decision of the arbitrator becomes final and binding. MFA arbitration may also be viewed as an aid to settlement of disputes by similarly providing a neutral evaluation of a party's claim. But where an MFAA arbitration occurs, it necessarily precedes any litigation. This sequence, as we explained below, is a significant difference for purposes of malicious prosecution. Additionally, while MFAA arbitration, like judicial arbitration, can be binding if not challenged via a request for a trial de novo, there is no statutory requirement mandating MFAA arbitration of all fee disputes, and there is no limit to the size of fee disputes that parties can take to MFAA arbitration, end quote. So that was how the Court of Appeal laid out the contractual versus judicial arbitration distinction. That was the distinction we had thought about. So how did the Court of Appeal untie this Gordian knot? Well, it punted. 
as it held, quote, Fortunately, there is no need to shoehorn MFA arbitration into either of these two categories. As Brennan recognized, the ultimate questions are whether the nature of the MFAA arbitration suits the purpose of the malicious prosecution tort and whether the tort suits the purpose of the MFAA arbitration. After examining those questions directly, we conclude MFAA arbitration cannot serve as the predicate for a malicious prosecution claim. Close quote. So the Court of Appeal did not bother to make the distinction we had argued so vigorously. The court looked at prior decisions that had decided whether the underlying action would support a malicious prosecution claim. One case had held that a party could not sue for malicious prosecution following a small claims action, concluding that doing so would not advance the purpose of a malicious prosecution claim and would frustrate the small claims process. Another case held that there could be no malicious prosecution claim following an attempted civil harassment restraining order. So the court just added MFAA arbitrations to this list, concluding that allowing a malicious prosecution action would not advance the purpose of that tort and would frustrate the purpose of the informal fee dispute process. When George had come to me with this case, I was outraged that an attorney would do this. Just about every profession has some review process. If you get a room addition and you feel that the contractor did a poor job or overcharged you, you can go to the contractor's licensing board. If you have a dispute with your real estate agent, there is a process for that. If you don't like your nose job, you can go to the medical board. It's outrageous to picture a scenario whereby using one of those methods would expose you to liability. In the legal profession, that process is the MFAA arbitration process, but here Esquire had sued his own client for following that process. Process. In the end, it is clear that the Court of Appeal experienced the same outrage and crafted an opinion to make certain this does not happen again in the future. The fact that it could not solve the conundrum presented did not stop it from finding a method to rule against Esquire. By concluding that the MFAA process could not support a subsequent malicious prosecution action, the court ruled that Esquire could not meet the second prong of the anti-slap analysis. The Court of Appeal ordered the trial court to grant my anti-slap motion, and that entitled us to attorney fees for the original motion and the entire appeal process. For his part, Esquire did not go quietly into the night. He actually sought to amend his complaint to add another cause of action. I think he was just trying to keep the action alive in the hope that he could work out a walkaway settlement. I'm sure his thought process was that since the Court of Appeal had only determined that a malicious prosecution action was not supported, he could sue for defamation and maybe inflection of emotional distress and get around that roadblock. I explained to him that his reasoning was faulty in two regards. First, Claims for defamation and infliction of emotional distress would also be separately defective under the anti-slap statute. He would be suing for things said in an official process, and that is absolutely privileged. Additionally, case law is clear that just as you can't amend your complaint to avoid a pending anti-slap motion, you can't do so following appeal. Esquire quite wisely withdrew his motion to amend, but continued to argue that it was an option. I think today's lesson is simply, don't be a dick. Esquire keeps trying to cast himself as the victim as though George did something terrible by challenging his fees. But it was Esquire who wouldn't let it go. If you want to read the opinion of the Court of Appeal, the published case is Dorit versus No. D-O-R-I-T versus No, N-O-E. And just as promised, stick around for the after show to hear about how Dorit, a.k.a. Esquire, tried to fight my motion for attorney fees. Have a great week and try not to slap anyone.
So opposing counsel Dorrit had argued at the appeal that it would be a terrible miscarriage of justice to find in my client's favor because, after all, Dorrit had done nothing wrong. To that, one of the justices responded, well, maybe you shouldn't have sued him for malicious prosecution. Dorrit's worst fear came true, and the Court of Appeal ordered the trial court to grant my anti-slap motion. That meant my client was now entitled to recover all his fees and costs from Dorrit for both the initial motion and the appeal. Although an anti-slap motion can be time-consuming, an appeal is always far more so. You might not think so, because the appeal basically argues the same points as the original motion. But you're limited to just 15 pages at the trial court level to make all of your arguments, but you can greatly expand on that at appeal. My appeal brief was some 50 pages long. There is case law I love to cite that held an appeal should not simply be a repeat of the prior motion and that it is below the standard of care if it is. I've probably done more anti-slap motions than any other attorney in the state, and with that experience comes efficiency. But that efficiency comes from being able to quickly identify the complaint as a slap and knowing the relevant cases. The opposing attorneys always argue that I should have templates from my other motions and therefore should be able to do the motions faster than the average attorney. But it doesn't work that way. Each case is unique and brings with it unique issues. In this case, for example... I was arguing that an MFAA arbitration falls under the anti-slap statute. Do you seriously think I've made niche arguments like that before? What template would I use to make that argument? It all has to be created anew. The rule of thumb, according to case law, is that an anti-slap motion should take about 50 hours. I usually don't need that many hours, but in this case, I had to fight a motion to amend and a crazy ex parte application opposing counsel had brought. So I was right at the 50 hours for the original motion and about one and a half times that for the appeal. Hoping to reduce the attorney fees, Dorrit hired an attorney named Kim Corellis to opine on my attorney fees. Corellis provided a 65-page report challenging my fees. It was, it was really a sight to behold. Dorrit must have paid $10,000 for this report. The court observed that the expert's report, quote, appears to represent an attempt to evade the local rules page limitations. In other words, the court was saying, I'm not fooled by this. You're citing to case law and such. This is just a way to get around the 15-page page, page limit. Corellis challenged my fees on three grounds. First, he said my hourly rate of $4.95 was too high. That's a really bad way to start. As an expert, you lose all your credibility if you offer an opinion that is unsupportable. Corellis decided to challenge my rate and argued that based on something called the Real Rate Report, my hourly rate of $495 was just too damn high. He felt that an attorney with over 30 years of experience should be limited to $430 per hour. This was a ridiculous position to take, and the judge not only rejected it, he said that my rate of $495 was, quote, entirely reasonable and indeed is notably modest in light of Morris's expertise in this specialized area of the law. I couldn't agree more. In fact, the entire report was ridiculous. He also claimed my hours should be reduced because of block billing. Block billing is when you lump together a bunch of different activities as a single item. For example, an attorney might submit an invoice that says, pre-trial work, 30 hours. That sort of block billing is frowned upon because in reviewing the bill, the court can't determine precisely what was done during those 30 hours. The expert identified one, one entry that he claimed was block billing and on that basis felt all my fees should be denied. The theory being you can't determine what was done by the block billing, so you just have to ignore the entire fee application, even though I can only point to one item, right? And the item was I spent the night in San Francisco so I could attend oral argument the following morning. The morning of the argument, I drove to court and did the argument. My time entry for the day read, quote, travel to and oral argument at court of appeal, 
1.4 hours. There is nothing wrong with that sort of block billing. In fact, there is case law that holds that block billing is fine and dandy so long as the judge can determine if the time was reasonable. So, according to my time entry, I drove to court and I argued the appeal. The court rules provide that attorneys must check in 30 minutes before oral argument, figure another 30 minutes to get to court and find a parking place, and an entire hour is accounted for. That leaves just 0.4 hours for the oral argument. A judge could easily determine that was a very reasonable amount of time for both those activities, yet the expert was arguing that all of my time should be disallowed because it was proof of block billing. Finally, the expert made the blanket claim that I took too much time for the motion and the appeal, but he could offer no examples. But here's where it got fun. So, Dort pays this guy big money to attack my bill, and using every weapon in his arsenal, the expert is still forced to concede that the court should award $40,392 for all the work I had done. But Dort makes no mention of the expert's conclusions in his opposition papers, and instead reaches the conclusion that I should be paid no more than, quote, a de minimis amount of $10,000, unquote. So he pays the guy big money for his opinion and then basically says to the court, don't listen to that expert, he doesn't know what he's talking about, and proceeds to offer different conclusions. The court stated that counsel's suggestion of $10,000 was, quote, an assertion that is flatly inconsistent with the opinions offered by his own expert, unquote. To prove I overbilled, Dorrit offered one example. I had charged, this was great, I had charged 1.8 hours for, quote, preparation for and telephonic attendance at ex-party application. Opposing counsel had requested a different hearing date for my motion, and I agreed to move it, but said that we'd have to have the judge sign off on it. Opposing counsel refused to cooperate in that process and instead brought an ex-party application. I had to prepare for the motion, and when I called in, the court did not call our matter until the end of the calendar, so I was on the phone for over an hour waiting for our matter to be called. Yet, counsel claimed I'd billed 1.8 hours to prepare for the hearing, completely ignoring that I had attended the hearing. In the end, it was all for naught. The court awarded our attorney fees, knocking off some time for post-appeal work that it did not feel was directly related to the anti-slap. It concluded that 146.9 hours was reasonable for the motion and appeal and awarded almost $73,000 in attorney fees. When seeking attorney fees following a successful anti-slap motion, you also get to charge the opposition for the time spent on the motion for attorney fees. I obviously had to go through the expert's 65-page report and refute each and every point he raised. So opposing counsel not only paid the expert for the report that accomplished nothing, but he then had to pay me more for the time I spent refuting that report. Until next time, thanks for listening.